Well, good morning. Let's hear a great big Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Well, that's great. Uh, what a, a great morning to uh, be indoors. We apologize. It's a little cooler than we'd like it to be in here. But our shepherding pastor, Pastor Keith, keeps wanting us to get closer and closer together. So what he does is he turns the heat down and he says, get to know your neighbor. And that's, uh, that's part of the reason. I'm kidding. It should be heating up here, especially with me talking. There's a lot of hot air. And uh, you should be feeling plenty of warmth this morning. As Al was saying, it is very difficult to put Christmas messages together. In all the Bible, there are seven chapters in all of Scripture that deal with the Christmas story. A couple in the Old Testament, and then, of course, your gospel narratives in the New Testament. And, and we, as, as preachers, are always looking for creative ways uh, to uh, preach the Christmas story. And as I was uh, thinking about that, an email came through this week that had an article that more pastors look to the Internet to find sermons during the Christmas season because their well has run dry. And I was thinking, well, the best way to do that is not to go into the Internet, but just to make new characters in the Christmas story. There's a story that was once told of a Sunday school class that was going to uh, do a, um, a, a drawing of the Christmas story, the manger scene. And little Johnny was all excited. He loved the story of Christmas. He loved the shepherds and the wise men and the manger and baby Jesus. And he was all excited. He told Mrs. Thompson, his Sunday school teacher, I'm going to draw the best picture of Christmas yet. So he starts working and all the kids around him are working on their Christmas picture. And he gets done and he takes it to Mrs. Thompson and he says, look at this. Here is my best picture for Christmas. And she looks, she sees, of course, baby Jesus with Joseph and Mary, sees the shepherd, sees the manger, sees the star of Bethlehem. And then there's this uh, quite large man standing next to Joseph. And he's shaped a lot like me, a big guy. And uh, he's standing there and Mrs. Thompson says, son, who is, who is that large man? I don't remember him in the Christmas story. He says, Mrs. Thompson, don't you remember round John Virgin? <laughs> so with that, I'm not going to create any new characters like round John Virgin, but uh, we're going to open up God's Word this morning. If you would open up to uh, Matthew chapter 2 this morning, we are going to talk about a tale of two kings. A tale of two kings. And uh, now, if you've been with us, you know we've been going through the book of Romans. We're going to finish up our series in Romans next week as we finish up that great first chapter of Romans. But for uh, this Sunday and for Christmas Eve, we are going to put our attention to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll be as we look at the wise men on Christmas Eve night, if you're willing and able to come and be a part of that. But we're going to look at the first part of uh, Matthew chapter 2. So I'm going to ask that you would stand as we read together from God. God's Word, Matthew chapter 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. 
In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go to and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and try to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 19 says, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. Let's pray. Father God, we come to uh, just an amazing story this morning. A story that could come out of the movies of Hollywood. A king who is disturbed, a whole nation that is disturbed at the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we live in a world that is disturbed about your son this morning. And for many of the same reasons that King Herod was. So, Father, let us glean from that as we uh, compare and contrast two kings this morning. As we look to one human king and then we look at a heavenly king this morning that we would find the place of right allegiance this morning, and that we would glean and learn the truths that You have for us this Christmas season. Again, to You be the glory and honor, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I am a huge political junkie. I love all the news stations and all they're talking about the Democrats and the Republicans, and, and it's, it's quite amazing that I'm even looking forward to January 3rd, the day of the Iowa caucuses. It's an amazing time in our nation's history as we go about the electing of a new president. 
But as we do that, there's a process that takes place. It's this whole election process where we look at the candidates. We look at where they stand. We look at who they are. We even look back deep into their history of where they came from and what they did and what their kids did and what their wives did and what their roommates did back in college. And then we go into a little box we call a voting booth and we pick who we want to give our allegiance to. Well, that first Christmas wasn't much different. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 2 that Jesus had been born. The manger scene had had gone at that point. We know that uh, Mary and Joseph at that point are in a house. We're not sure exactly where they may have been at that time, whether they stayed in Bethlehem or they had gone back to their uh, area of residence. But we know that uh, it had been a couple years And we know that at that time there was some political upheaval taking place. And just like us here in America, we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 2 looking at two very distinctly different candidates who wanted to be entitled the King of the Jews and the Savior of people. The first king that we see in your outline this morning that I want to compare and contrast is that of King Herod. Is that of King Herod. Now, we know uh, much about King Herod from secular historians. And we learn that King Herod was a a, a pretty uh, crazy kind of guy. There's a a lot that is said about him and not much that is good. We know from uh, historians that Herod was a man who was preoccupied. I don't know about you, but this is a season of preoccupation. This is a season where we seem to find ourselves not getting the task done that we want to because we're worried about this thing and that thing and making sure we get this gift and and that gift and we make sure we bake the cookies. But Herod was much different than that. He wasn't worried about cookies. He wasn't worried about the family coming over. There were four things that historians tell us that Herod was preoccupied with. This is not in your outline. I I added this last night, wanted to beef up the message a little bit. He was preoccupied with power. Historians tell us that King Herod was a dictator. And to be the kind of man that he would be, to be the kind of dictator that he wanted to be, it meant that he ruled with an iron fist. It meant that what he was going to do was he was going to kill anybody who got in his way. Historians tell us that King Herod uh, annihilated uh, many of his own enemies because they would stand in the way of him gaining power. King Herod was known as a dealmaker. A dealmaker who would work with uh, other leaders in the area and he would broker deals so that he would gain more power. He was known as a shrewd uh, ruler. Now the second thing we see is not only was he preoccupied with power, but he was preoccupied with prestige. This guy wanted everybody to know who he was. He wanted everybody to have their lives work around his life. One of the amazing things that he did is he made his birthday a national holiday. He said, well, it's my birthday and I'm a pretty popular guy, so what I'm going to do is everybody gets the day off and I want you to celebrate because it's my birthday. The next thing that he did, because he knew he wasn't very well liked. In fact, King Herod was one of the most hated uh, kings at that time. King Herod, knowing that nobody would mourn his death, wrote a decree that said that the key hundred leaders around him at the moment of his death were to be brought to the palace and to be killed. 
The reason why he wanted those hundred men killed is he knew that they had fans. And that at least if he killed some other people along with his death, nobody would mourn him, but they would mourn the hundred that died with him. This is the kind of guy that we've got. The next thing that we see is because of his desire for prestige, he married ten women, eight of them that would give him more power and more notoriety. That's a lot of wives, ten wives to have. I would hate to have to shop for that many women, but that's probably what this guy did. He was married to eight women. Of the ten, two were for love probably, and the other eight were for prestige. But it goes beyond that because we learn that he was uh, preoccupied with possessions. He was preoccupied with possessions. This guy built monuments to himself. Now, it's one thing for us as we uh, go to Washington, D.C., to build monuments to our presidents, to remember them, to honor what they've done. This guy didn't wait till he died. He built his own monuments to himself. That's, that's kind of morbid, isn't it? Here, I'm going to go ahead and build some, some uh, temples for myself and some buildings for myself. In fact, he had seven palaces. That would have been twice as many as anybody before him. He built theaters. In fact, one theater that he uh, named after himself seated 9,500 people. He built a stadium, again, that was his own name, named it after himself, that seated 300,000. And then he built entire cities uh, for his fame. This guy wanted possessions, and he wanted everybody to know that they were his he was like a two-year-old at Christmas time. As the gifts are being opened, and I'll run into this in a couple days with my two boys, they'll open the gifts, and what will they say? Not thank you, not oh, this is wonderful. This is mine. And I've got a two-year-old and a five-year-old, and they already say that. Mine. No, it's mine. That's what Herod did. This is mine. But the biggest preoccupation that Herod had came in his preoccupation with paranoia. His paranoia. This is documented by secular historians. In fact, Josephus, a historian that uh, lived during the time of Jesus, said that he was always worried about losing power. Most dictators are. He was worried. Now, why would he have been worried about losing power? Because his father, who ruled before him, had been assassinated and had lost his power. And Herod was scared to death. He was paranoid that everybody wanted to kill him. In fact, historians tell us that he had three cupbearers that would try his food before it ever touched his lips. Usually kings had one. And if the guy didn't drop dead, then he would go ahead and happily partake. This guy was so paranoid, he wanted to make sure three guys didn't die before he ate his food. He was paranoid. In fact, what he did at one point, thinking his, one of his wives, one of the ten wives that he had, was trying to usurp some authority, he had her killed. His boy, her boys got upset. He had her three boys killed as well. And then the mother-in-law started to speak up, and he had her killed. Now, I don't want to see any smiles from some of you gentlemen today. Okay? He killed people around him, people that he said he loved because he was paranoid, because he was fearful. Now, this King Herod, this number one king that we see, it tells us that he was disturbed. Look at the first point this morning. He was disturbed at the realization of Christmas. Now, Christmas wasn't around as a holiday, of course, but Matthew chapter 2 tells us that in, under this uh, reign of this dictator, magi from the east come, and what do they say? 
They say, we've come because there's a star in the sky that we've seen. And we know from what we've learned, and many Bible scholars believe it was because of... You all right there? Doing good? Good, glad. I thought you were coming after me. I'm not paranoid. That's unbelievable. Ray gets more laughing and clapping than I do. I'll remember that. Better jokes. That's great. We know that during this time... And you lose your train of thought. When you, during this time of Matthew chapter 2, we know that King Herod hears from the Magi that a child has been born. Now that works right into his paranoia. Because words that are used, if you look in the text of Matthew chapter 2, they say, a king of the Jews has been born. Now this would have freaked out Herod because Herod had been called by the Roman Senate. He had been titled the king of the Jews. And here is this baby that had been born where magi from the east had come that Daniel probably had talked with. That's what I, that's where I was at before. We've made it around now, full circle. Daniel had, uh, we believe, because he had spent time in Babylonia uh, during the captivity, and there should have probably been some mention of that. Daniel as a prophet. We don't know how the, king, uh, the three kings, the magi from the east, had found out about Jesus's foretelling, or the foretelling of Jesus' birth. But these magi come, and they bring all the people in. And they come in and they say, King, we're looking for this baby who had been born. Now it says that he was disturbed at the realization of Christmas. He realized something was up. A dictator always knows, if he's going to last very long as a dictator, that something is taking place in his kingdom. And it says that he was disturbed. This word disturbed in the Greek literally means to shake violently. He receives news. There's been a baby born, and he is going to be the shepherd of his people Israel, the prophet says. And he says that he shook violently. He shook violently. He was ticked off. He was angry. And he wanted to deal with this and deal with it right. Now, why would he be so disturbed? There are a couple things that we see in the text. First of all, he was disturbed about the place of the birth of Jesus. He was disturbed at the place of Jesus' birth. Look at verse 2. It says, And uh, the Magi come east uh, to Jerusalem, and they were asked, where, they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his sar in the east and have come to worship him. They're looking for this king. Now think about it for a moment. If the world revolved around you and these great kings came, these great wise men came, and they probably brought an entourage with them. We'll talk about that on Christmas Eve, the, the, the kings from the east. And they come and, and they don't say anything about Herod. You don't see Matthew record anything about Herod. Like, nice to meet you, Herod. We came, we brought you some gifts, Herod. They say, we're here and we're looking for somebody. And Herod says, well... It's probably me. And they said, no, not you. We're looking for a baby. And they say, we're, we're trying to find him. Well, look at what they say. It says that it was at the place of Christ's birth. They asked, where was this Christ to be born? King Herod asked all of his chief priests and, and teachers of the law. And it says, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means among the, least among the rulers of Judah. It says that he was born in Bethlehem. Man, we got kids running down here all over the place. 
They can't wait to get in here to hear some great teaching this morning. They said, thank you, someone, thank you. Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. A small little town. The least, one of the least in the kingdom of Judah. But it was going to be a place of greatness. Herod, who was a Jew, would have known that Bethlehem was a place of significance because of a second reason that Herod was his servant. That was because of what had been uh, promised about the Christ's birth. Because what the prophets say is they say this baby is going to be born in Bethlehem. And the prophets would have articulated that. They would have heard that. They would have known that. Herod would have understood that. He would have known by his chief priests and teachers that if they would have said, okay, well, it took place in Cairo, Egypt, this was where the, he would say, you know what, that's no big deal. But I know where this king of the Jews is supposed to be born. He's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But look at what it says. It says that he was going to be promised for a couple of things. Look at the three words that I see in our text this morning that Herod would have hated. Number one, he was called the king of the Jews in verse two. Again, that was Herod's name. What little baby would take his name away? The second thing we see is he was called the Messiah. It says later in the text that this was uh, they were looking for the child who would be uh, the Messiah. The next thing we see is that he would be called uh, a ruler. Look at what the prophet says. The prophet says in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Herod's scared. He's disturbed. Why? Because there's a promise that the baby would be born in Bethlehem. And next there would be that that baby born in Bethlehem wouldn't just be any baby, but he would be a baby that would rule the people of Israel. And you've got this paranoid king who says, I'm upset. I'm shaking violently over this new news that I've gotten. Now the text says, look at what it says uh, uh, in the text as well. Let's see where it says that. I don't have it written down. It says that when King Herod heard this, verse 3, that he was disturbed. And it says, in all Jerusalem with him. I don't know if you have someone in your family. Maybe you're going to go to their house. Maybe it's a mother or a mother-in-law, a sister or a brother that you never want to cross. And the reason why you never want to cross them is because they make life miserable for everybody. Did anybody, can anybody re- resonate with that? Uh, yeah, you're too scared to raise your hand because you know they may get a tape of this. There are people in my family that I would rather not get in their way. Why? Because if they start getting angry, then I will feel their wrath. That's why Jerusalem was disturbed. That's why they were upset. They didn't know what their king was going to do. There's this prospect of this new king, and he's, he's may, he may take over as the ruler of the kingdom, and, and, and what's Herod going to do? He's going to come after us. He may kill us. He may think that we're for this guy. I, I don't want that. And it says all of Jerusalem was disturbed. So what's this king going to do? The next thing that we see is that King Herod was deceitful in his response to Christmas. He's angry. He's disturbed. Everybody in Jerusalem is uneasy. And what happens next? He says, I've got an opportunity. This guy was shrewd. And he says, all right, I've got these kings from the east who have come to uh, find this guy. I'm going to use them. 
We see that he was uh, this deception that was seen in his investigation. Look at uh, verse 4 first. In verse 4 it says that uh, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. The NAS says that he inquired. He diligently inquired about where it was at. This, nothing else was going to happen in the kingdom until he found out where this baby was born. He says, let's figure it out. Now, look at what it says next. He tells them in verse 8, he talks with the Magi themselves. In verse 8, he says that he sent the Magi to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. That phrase, careful search, means do not leave a stone unturned. Don't come back until you find him. This is what this guy's wanting to do. He goes and he tells the guys, hey, I want you to go find this baby. Now look at what it says next, because not only was he um, deceitful in his uh, investigation, but his intentions as well. With his intentions. Look at verse B, or 8B, it says. It says that as soon as you find him, after you've gone and searched for him, as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship Him. He says, all right, there's this baby that's born in Bethlehem. He's the one that was promised by the prophets. Go find Him so I can worship Him. He's lying. He's lying right through His teeth. Now, why would he be deceitful? Why would he try to do this? Well, that's the third point we see this morning. And that was he wanted to destroy the reason for Christmas. Now look at what it says. This destruction is seen through a couple things. First of all, the emotions that he displayed. Look at verse 16 with me for a moment. The Magi go, and as you're looking there, I'll fill in the verses that come before that. The Magi go, and they they look under every stone and in every house, and they find, because of the star that led them, they find Jesus in a house with Mary and Joseph. And they worship Him, and we'll learn they give Him three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then they are told not to go back to King Herod. Why? Because King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to destroy Him. What what does a dictator do if someone tries to take power? Herod knew what to do. Just like he had done before, you get rid of the problem. And that's what he was going to do with baby Jesus. But look at what it says, what happened. Once he learns that uh, the Magi had outwitted him, that they had uh, moved away from doing what he had said, in verse 16 it says, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. This guy is angry. This guy is upset. This guy wants blood. This is the kind of king that he was. And he wants to go and destroy Christ. Because in destroying Christ, he destroys any competition that would come his way. So what does he do? Just what every good, uh, uh, evil, um, good evil, a bad dictator would do. A bad dictator would go and he would give a decree and we see it seen in the execution that he demanded. This is a terrible scripture that is shared in verse 16 through 18. He realizes he'd been outwitted by the Magi. He's furious. Look at what it says. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under. 
in accordance with what he had learned from the Magi. Think about this today. Think about if you were watching your news on CNN or MSNBC, ABC, whatever news outlet you go to, and George Bush gets up in the Rose Garden and he says, I hear a baby was born in Sugar Grove. And you know that I'm the leader. Let it be made perfectly clear I'm the leader. Nobody else is the leader on my watch. It's me. And so everybody in the Kane County area that is under two years of age and is a male baby is to be killed. Think about the weeping. Think about the wailing that took place. Soldiers coming in, grabbing little babies. Little baby boys and grabbing them and taking them away so that they would be killed. This is the kind of man that King Herod was. We don't know how many historians believe it was in the thousands that were killed. This is an ugly time in the Christmas story. But the greatness, the grace that takes place is God moves Joseph and Mary to head down to Egypt. And that's where we learn about a second king this morning. The second king we see is not an earthly king, not a human king, but a heavenly king. This king's name is Jesus. He's Jesus. And there's a compare and contrast that happens when you look at Jesus and you look at Herod. The first thing we saw of Herod is he was disturbed. He was uneasy. He had no peace. He was paranoid. But my friends, our king, the next king that we see, Jesus, is called the Prince of Peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. Look at what uh, it says in uh, Luke chapter 2. Turn there for a moment. If you're in the book of Matthew, go a couple chapter, or a couple books to your right, and you'll find the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. We learn that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's not paranoid. Jesus isn't disturbed. Jesus is completely at peace because His attribute, one of His attributes, is being peaceful. And we see that he is called the Prince of Peace. First of all, that's seen in a heavenly announcement. Luke chapter 2, which was read this morning by Beth, verse 14. Starting in verse 13, it says, A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. Jesus came to bring peace to mankind. Now Isaiah says that he would be called the Prince of Peace. A Prince who would come, who would bring peace. What a great title to be called the Prince of Peace. But where is this peace seen? It's seen in his actions. If you read the Gospels, if you look to what the Gospel writers say about the ministry of Jesus Christ, we don't see a man who is disturbed. We see Christ, the Messiah, who's at peace. He's at peace when people try to attack Him. He's at peace when uh, people come and, and they've got all kinds of debilitating diseases and struggles. We know that even when He's in a boat with His disciples and the boat is rocking and they're crying out saying they want to die and that they're going to die, the Bible says Jesus is at peace sleeping in the bottom of the boat. And that He gets up and where there's calamity, He stands up and He comes up to the top of the boat and He calms the sea. He brings peace to turbulent times. 
I don't know about you this morning, but there are some, just like King Herod, who are disturbed this Christmas. You're disturbed for many different reasons. And it's not because you're a dictator. It's not because you're uh, this evil, evil person who's out to kill a whole bunch of babies. But there's disturbed feelings in your heart this Christmas. There's this idea that, that maybe your family's not together. Maybe a divorce has taken place this Christmas. And, and, and things aren't just the way they used to be. Maybe it's because you're disturbed because of some family elements. Maybe you're disturbed because you, you, you had all these grand ideas about this holiday and as you looked at your checking account, there just isn't any money to do the things that you wanted to do. Maybe your family's dealing with some issues. Maybe you've got a rebellious child that just has taken away any kind of peace at Christmas. Maybe you're fighting with your spouse. Maybe you've got some emotional distress. Maybe you're just depressed this Christmas. King Herod was disturbed at that first Christmas because of the coming of a king. In our nation today, there are people who are disturbed at even the prospect of Christmas. They want to see Christmas taken out of everything. They want us just to go around and, and they'd rather us not say anything about Christmas because it disturbs them. It bothers them, frankly, because that's not their religion. That's not their faith. Jesus is not their Messiah. Christmas is a time for many, a time of great disruption, a time of great pain. And just like King Herod, they were disturbed. And little did he know that the king that he wanted to destroy was the king that could bring him peace. The greatest need that Herod had was peace. He was a paranoid guy. And he could have gone to Jesus and been truthful with Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm paranoid. I'm scared to death. Likewise, we can do the same thing this morning. Whatever your disruption is, whatever you're disturbed about, go to Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. The second thing that we see this morning is Jesus always keeps His promises. The second point that we learned about Herod was that he was deceitful. He lied. He was a king that took care of his own interests, and that meant he would do whatever it took to get what he wanted. So he lies to the three kings, and he says, you know what, I want to see him, so when you find him, tell me where he's at so I can worship him. So what happens? He lies. He's lying through his teeth, but we see with Jesus, king number two, that Jesus keeps all his promises. Jesus is a promise keeper. I don't know if you know this, but it has been said there are more than 7,000 promises in the Bible. 7,000. I don't know if that number's right. If you want to take your vacation time and go ahead and start in Genesis and start counting the promises, good for you. You're a better person than I am. I go to the back of my NIV Bible that says promises from the Bible. Someone has done the homework for me. Now, they don't have all 7,000 of them, but I want to read very quickly what it says for these. Let me just give you a, a list of God's promises, remembering that God keeps every one of them. We see God's promise of love, forgiveness, salvation, the Holy Spirit, everlasting life, peace, joy, freedom, growth, encouragement, excellence, strength, blessing, His presence, answered prayer, and Christ's return. 
There's promises when you feel guilty, when you feel dejected, when you feel despair, disappointed, depressed. Sounds like one of my messages, all those D's. Persecuted, anxious, when you're filled with longing, when you are sick, when you are impatient, when you are confused. There's promises for all of those. It says when you are tempted, when you are weak, when you are afraid, when you are in need, when you grieve, when you suffer, when you fail, when you doubt. Al talked about a family in our church that has received uh, terrible news medically. And that family is rejoicing right now. Not in the circumstances that have befallen them. Cancer is something you never want to rejoice about. It's an ugly thing. It disturbs who you are. But I'm so thankful for the carpenters and for the Vulcanings and those around them that can rejoice that God has a plan and God has a promise. And that's what we as Christians rejoice in, that God keeps His promises. He's a promise keeper. Aren't you so glad that that Jesus isn't like King Herod, that does what He wants, that does what it gets Him, and He doesn't worry about us? Jesus promises things, and He keeps His promises. They're seen in the past. Write that down. Promises are seen in the past. Hold this book up in your hands if you've got one in your hands. This is a promise book. This is a promise book. It's full of promises. And there's promises in the Old Testament, promises to people that God said, I'm going to do something for you. And it says that it came to pass. I think about Abraham and Sarah. I think about Abraham and Sarah because during this time there are people, even in our own midst, who have no other desire at Christmas than to wake up on Christmas morning and to have a bunch of little children come out of their rooms and run to the Christmas tree all excited. Yet, but for one reason or another, they're unable to have kids. And I think of the promise that Abraham and Sarah received. Abraham and Sarah, 100 years of age, the Bible says that Abraham's body was as good as dead. How would you like to be described that way? As good as dead. But Abraham was promised a long time ago that he would have a son. And that his son would be the beginning of a great nation. And a hundred years go by. And there's a whole great story of of even the sin that takes place and and the bad decisions that are made during those hundred years when they're waiting on this promise. But God's promise is good and it's true. And what happens? They give birth to a son. God's promises are good. They're true. The next thing we see is they're seen in the present. They're seen in the present. I just don't rejoice in a God who made a lot of promises that are contained in this book. But I look at the promises that are contained in this book, not just for other people, but for me as well. I think about the great promises that the Bible tells me that there will be nothing that will happen to me without the express written consent, it sounds like Major League Baseball, without the express written consent of God. So whatever befalls me, whatever happens to my children, I can know and understand, as I've told you before, never forget this, any trial in your life goes across the desk of Almighty God. He won't let anything happen unless He has given approval for it to take place according to His divine will and plan. And I'm thankful for that. 
I'm thankful that I have a God who's in control. A God who's watching over me. A God who will protect me. A God who will love me. A God that forgives me. I see that in Scripture. Jesus Christ came because He was promised. He was called the promised one. And I'm so thankful that He did come. That He didn't say, you know what, God? I know you said maybe we need to go down to earth and save those people from their sin. But you know what? That means i got to go to the cross. And, and Father, I, I don't want to do that. That's going to bring pain. That's going to bring suffering. You know, Father, I know you said we need to go down and we need to save them from their sins, but but that means I have to leave all the angels worshiping me and all the comforts and all the glorious things in heaven. And you know what? I'd rather just stay up here. Aren't you glad that Christ kept His promise? And that when the prophet said Messiah was coming, that in this great season of Christmas, He came to redeem us from our sins. We see it in the past. We see it in the present. And we see it in the, what I call the future. <laughs> There's Tim making up words again. You think that I'm being funny. You go and you buy a faucet and it's made by Fister and it starts with a P. He was preaching a sermon, little did we know, when he was making faucets in the future. Couldn't find anything. I looked long and hard. Ray couldn't come up with anything, so he gave up. In the future, aren't you glad that there's some great promises in the future? Aren't you glad that when Jesus came, He made promises about the future? John chapter 14 tells us some things. If you're in Luke or in Matthew, go to your right for a moment, and you'll find the book of John. We, we studied through the book of John the first part of this year. Spent, uh, uh, I believe it was almost three quarters of a year in this great gospel. And uh, in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, after three years of ministry, after three amazing years, where these disciples go from just being ordinary guys to seeing people healed, people raised from the dead, the feeding of 5,000. Man, things are just going great for them. What do I do? All right. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but this is a big Sunday. This is Christmas Sunday. Let's keep our eye on the prize, PowerPoint guy. All right? Unbelievable. All right, that's the last time Pete will have Pete up here again instead of back there. Back to where I was at. Where was I at? And where was I at? John 14, Jesus says, all, after all these great things have taken place... Look at what he says in uh, verses 1 through 16, because in verse or chapter 13, he says, I'm going to die. Now think about for a moment, after you've spent all this time with Jesus, three years, he says he's going to establish his kingdom, and you've had this thing in your mind that you're going to rule with Jesus, and the, and the dominion of Rome is going to be taken away, and Israel for one, once and for all is going to have a great king again, like King David of the Old Testament. And they're excited. And Jesus says, I got some news for you. I got to go to the cross. I got to die. But look at what he says. Great promises here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Aren't you glad that there's a place that has been promised? Aren't you glad there's a place that is being prepared? Aren't you glad that there's a place that is there for us? All who've called upon the name of the Lord and have been saved. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Whether you deal with disease, whether here you deal on this earth with debt or death, or whatever troubles, dissension around you, aren't you glad that the moment you close your eyes and breathe your last breath, that Jesus has promised that apart from the body, we are present with Almighty God? That's what Jesus promises. I don't know about you this Christmas. Maybe you've been lied to. Maybe you're going to go and spend some time with people who haven't fulfilled their promises. I was talking with uh, an employee of mine at my workplace, and and he was talking about he he didn't want to go uh, to see his father because his father has let him down. And he talked about the drinking in his father's life when he was a young child. He said, my Christmases weren't any fun. They were nothing but pain and suffering because my father-in-law would start drinking at the office parties and he'd come home and he'd be angry. And he said, you know what? I don't want to see him. He's let me down and I cannot forgive him. Aren't you glad that there's one who has come who didn't come and bring pain and suffering but took on the pain and suffering for us and gave us promises? Not of just the past. He doesn't just look to the past and say, remember how good I was in the past. He doesn't just say, remember the future, or I'm sorry, remember the the present and the things that you're dealing with. I love Paul's words where he says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and submission and supplication to the Lord. And that God will meet all our needs, he says later in that great book of Philippians, according to the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that there's one that came? that has taken care of us, who meets our needs, who gives us everything towards a life of godliness and a life that pursues Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that God has given you that and He's promised that and that there's a future in heaven? What a day that will be when we go and we worship and we stand together with all of the saints of old and the saints of the present and the saints of the future and we stand around Christ's throne. And just like that myriad of angels did in Luke chapter 2, we sing glory to God in the highest. The final thing we see this morning is not only did Jesus, is He the Prince of Peace, and that He keeps His promises, but He came to pardon men from their sins. Another comp- comparison we see, Herod comes, and what does he do? He destroys Herod has no right to destroy. Herod had no right to go and start killing innocent baby boys. He didn't have that right. Just because he was a king, just because he was a dictator, that is wrong. No king has the right to kill anybody, no matter how large his throne is, except for one. The Bible says, the Bible tells us time and time again, that when Jesus came to this world of sin, this world of disobedience, it says that we as people deserve death. And Jesus would have had the perfect right as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the holy God that He is, to destroy every one of us. But you know what He did? He didn't come to destroy. 
But the Bible says that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save that which was lost. Herod destroyed Christmas by killing babies. Jesus brings praise to the story of Christmas because He came to deliver man from their sin. There are three things that this pardon involves. It involves the deliverance from the penalty of sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wage of sin is death. Jesus had every right to just, just get rid of us. To take us out and say, I'm done with you guys. You messed up. You blew it. It's over. But He doesn't. Because the Bible says at this great time of gift giving that the wage of sin is death. I always love that three letter word that says, but. Even though we've got a penalty of sin against us that is death, but the gift of God is found in salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a death sentence against us. Just like those little babies in Bethlehem. But there was a deliverer who came to save us from our sins. From the penalty of sin. There's the next one is the power of sin. Romans 6.22, one verse before that great verse, it says the following. Romans 6.22, write that in your outline somewhere. And this is what it says. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. We've been freed from the power of sin. Jesus didn't just come in and say, okay, I'll take care of all your past sins. You're all free. And there's some amnesty here. Everybody gets amnesty. And, and, and you're done with the past issues. That's not what he does. I, I used to love the amnesty day, if, if you remember, uh, in the library. I, I don't remember checking out many books, but I always remember having overdue fines. Okay, I wasn't much of a reader as a kid, but I seemed to grab books and never bring them back. And I waited for one of those days in May where the school librarian would say, just please bring the books back. And if you bring them back, we won't charge you for what you've done. And so I'd bring a stack of books, you know, and I'd say, here you go, Mrs. Librarian. And she would just shake her head like most people did when I was a kid. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus didn't just say, I'll take care of the penalty in the past. But he says also, I know that there's an evil one in the world. And I know that there's temptation to sin. I won't just deal with the past, but I'll help you in the time of the present as well. That you have power to be freed from the power of sin. And so that we don't have to live the way we used to. We've been dealing with this issue of sin in Romans chapter 1. And the great gift that Jesus brings at Christmas is the freedom from sin. That we no longer have to live for ourselves. That we no longer have to live the way that the world lives. Because we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Who when we follow Him, we don't reap destruction and death. But we reap a life that is full of blessing and full of praise and full of great and noble things. The final thing we see is one day we'll be freed from the presence of sin. I know that it's, it's wonderful at the time of Christmas 
to get our families together, to sit around that fireplace, and to have everybody warm and cozy on an incredibly blustery day today. It's great just to pull everybody together for a meal and to be just thankful for your family. But we know that we live in a world of turbulence. We know that right now we live in a world of war, that we live in a world of terror. And even if we try to pull our family together and just keep them close to us, that we have to let them go at some point, and they go into this great and terrible world that we live in. But here's the thing. One day, all that terror, all that pain, all the disease, all the weeping, all the, the suffering that takes place will be gone. Turn for a moment to the book of Revelation. If you get to your back cover, move back to your left a little bit. It's the last book of the Bible. And I'm going to get to the very end of this incredible book that we love here so very much. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 through 5. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. I'm going to start, in fact, just in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and they will, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. What happens? It says, Then He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, for there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Maybe today you're in a place of great turbulence in your life. You don't have to be. Maybe you're like King Herod this morning and disturbed for all different kinds of reasons. You don't have to be that way. Maybe you've been deceitful in your practices, deceitful in, in, in your response to this Christmas. You don't have to live that way. You don't have to go around trying to destroy the coming of Christ and the promise of this birth. You don't have to be that Grinch that stole Christmas. Why? Because if you want to be that way, you can live a life of hostility like King Herod did. King Herod died uh, not too long after Christ was born. We know from historians that he died a very lonely man, that he died a, a horrible death, and that nobody, it says, mourned his death. And you know, we can live lives like that that mean nothing because we're so hell-bent on stopping what Christ is trying to do in our own lives. Or we can be, and this is the second part of this little short series on Christmas, we can be like the wise men which you'll learn on Christmas Eve, who went and searched out for Jesus. And when they found Jesus, they worshipped Him. And it says they were so excited because of what they've seen and who they were a part of. This Christmas, the question I have for you is, how do you respond? Who do you give your allegiance to? Do you give your allegiance to one who says that Jesus is no good, that Jesus is a liar, that He is one that only wants to rule you with an iron fist, with a bunch of do's and don'ts? You do that, you walk out of this place, and tomorrow, uh, Tuesday will be no big day at all. Just another day, a day off of work possibly. Or, like the shepherds, like the wise men, 
like Mary his mother, you can go to Jesus and you can bow down and worship him. And you can know that there are promises that are kept by that great king. That he'll love you. That he'll care for you. That he'll meet your needs. That he'll bless you in unbelievable ways. That he'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. That he'll guard your heart and mind because of who he is. And you can bow your knee to that. And you can celebrate the birth of the greatest king of all kings. And the greatest lord of all lords. And you can give your allegiance to him. What will it be this morning? Will it be the same old life? Or will it be the new abundant life in Christ Jesus? You can begin by praying and saying, Lord, I'm so sorry for my sins. I'm so sorry for the sinful life that I've lived. And today I trust Christ as my Savior. And I don't just do it with my mouth, but I'm going to live a life of obedience. That it says that out of what I've proclaimed, I now will live. And if that's your heart, and you move in that way, then begin to live that way and pursue Christ with all of your heart, mind, and strength, the Bible says we will be born again. And we will be freed from all sin one day because we will be with Him forever in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You and we thank You this morning for the gift of Your Son. Father, I thank You for giving Your Son so that I would no longer have to be in my sin, no longer be dead in the trespasses of my sin, but You, because of Your amazing love, at just the right time, at just the right place, the book of Galatians says, You sent Your Son to be born of a woman who was born under the law that He might redeem those under the law. Father, we are those that are in need of a Redeemer this morning. And Father, I pray that we would not be like Herod this morning, who the very thought of Jesus brings hostility. The very thought of Jesus brings anger. The very thought of Jesus brings disruption. But Father, I pray that we'd be like those great wise men who found and followed a star and then who came and worshipped You. So, Father, I pray that we would be like those wise men this morning, that we would pursue You with all our hearts, that we would bow our knee and give our lives over to You, that we would be saved, and that we would be able to live lives that are glorifying to You and that bring praise to You, because You deserve it. For You are our only King. You are our only Lord. And for that, we worship You this morning. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.